Let's pray. God, first of all, this morning, we want to pray for another church in our community. We want to pray for family fellowship and pray for Paul Blue and his family. Pray for Paul just knowing firsthand the, a lot of the day-to-day challenges of this calling. I pray that you would guard his heart from um, being protective and cold and um, too careful and, um, I guess, conservative in the way that he engages people, the way that he receives people and reaches out to people. I pray that you would keep him soft-hearted, attentive, that you would grow him, keep him and grow him um, to be really gentle with your people, uh, as I would pray that for myself and every other pastor and elder in this community. Just considering who we represent, I pray that we are characterized by gentleness and truthfulness. I pray for his marriage and uh, knowing that it is the um, illustration and picture and more than metaphor in his home of what the gospel looks like. I pray that it is, um, I pray that he's dependent on God, that he's needy in that area because they are working on that illustration of the gospel. I pray that he is growing in his ability to love his wife as Christ loved the church. And that his wife is growing in her ability to follow her husband and enjoy her husband. Lord, I pray the same thing for myself and for the other elders at Crosspoint, the other pastors in this community. I pray that you would guard our marriages, that you would flour- that those marriages would flourish, that they would grow. They would be beautiful illustrations and pictures of the gospel to those that are around. Lord, also this morning. I want to pray for this, the work that Family Fellowship is part of, whether it's church planting or making disciples or equipping the saints for the work of service. Lord, we pray that they'll be faithful in doing so. We pray that they will preach through hard passages and that you will open the eyes of the blind and soften the hearts of the hard-hearted, um, that your people would grow, that they would be salty and bright and aromatic as I pray for our church. Lord, this morning, too, I want to pray for um, Christian Haas. Hearing the reports of how she's doing right now, we're thankful for the progress and thankful that you are, are sustaining her and that she seems to be improving, and we celebrate that as a victory. We give you the glory for that. Lord, also, this morning, I want to pray for how we spend these next few minutes. I pray that you would guard my mouth from any stray word that you would guard the ears of your people, that they would hear a message from you, that they would see the blessings that we swim in as being part of the people of God, and that they would hold fast and continue and cling to you and the people of God. Thankful for this hard message in advance. In Christ's name we pray, amen. If you're here for the first time, I want you to know that you are welcome. We are glad you're here, usually. This morning, I'm honestly, I'm going to be real honest with you, and if you're here for any period of time beyond this morning, you'll find that we're pretty honest from this pulpit and other places. This is just a hard morning to be here for your first time, and I hope you survive it. I mean, it's going to be, it's not going to be a sugar stick sermon, I guarantee that. It is, but we are glad you're here, yeah, in, in general. 
trying to redeem this. I feel like I just lost it. Um, this is a hard morning. I'll tell you right now, this is a passage of scripture that's likely the most debated passage of scripture in our Bibles. I have a number of commentaries in my, in my study that I look at every, and study every week in preparation for Hebrews. And um, every single commentator, I have a lot of appreciation for who I study. Otherwise, I wouldn't be studying them. They land in slightly different places on this passage. So, you know, it helps if people are landing in a place that sort of is, is, is in the same area, and then you can um, feel very comfortable there. But this, this is a very difficult passage. I'm just going to prepare you for that. Um, we probably need to say extra thanks to those that tend to the children after this sermon as well, if you have children over there, because they may be over there a little while. So just put your big boy pants on and let's climb into this. Okay, the book of Hebrews. It's not going to be a lecture this morning. This will be a sermon, okay? A lecture could hit all these different viewpoints and all these different possibilities, but there is a sermon to be wrought out of this passage that I think we need to hear this morning. There's a message of Hebrews. It's a message about continuing and a message about not bailing on God and his people. It's, it, you hear it throughout the book. Before I began to preach through Hebrews, I thought Hebrews was just sort of this theological treatise and I learned otherwise. It's making a point. It's what's called an occasional letter. It's being written for the purpose of an occasion to deal with a problem in the church. It's written by likely the Hebrews pastor who's not with his church for some reason at this moment. We believe this church is likely in Rome. We don't know that for, for sure, but we believe they're likely in Rome. And this message that he seems to be communicating to them is sort of this, this uh, staccato you know, tempo that's throughout this letter is continued. Don't bail. Listen to some of these passages. Hebrews 2, 1. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard, lest we drift away from it. Chapter 3, verse 12. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. 4, 1. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. And then 4.11, therefore, or let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. It is a message throughout this book, don't bail on God and his people. We pick up this morning in chapter six, verse one, really going all the way through verse eight, looking at the dangers of falling away. What you're actually losing and what the actual outcome will be for those who fall away. Chapter six, I'm gonna read all the way through verse eight. Plan for the morning is, I'm gonna read all the way through verse eight right now. Then we're gonna sort of unpack it. We're gonna go back and unpack it. We're not gonna spend gobs of time there, although we're not, I'm not gonna be light on it. We're gonna be thorough. And then we're gonna look at two really, really, really hard questions. And then two things that we should be able to walk away with as a church. And apply. Okay. Six, one through eight. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this will do if God permits. 
For it's impossible to restore again to repentance those who've once been enlightened, who've tasted the heavenly gift, have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, if they then fall away, since they're crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. For land that's drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it's cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it's worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Let's look at the first couple of verses, a really nice refresher from last week. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of, here are the elementary doctrines of Christ, according to what he's saying here, repentance from dead works and faith toward God, of instructions about washings and laying on of hands, and the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. There are three couplets there that all go together. These two, each of these two go together. The first one is repentance from dead works and faith toward God. A little couplet. Repentance and faith. You may have heard those things go together. Instructions about washings and laying on of hands. This instructions about washings has to do with baptism. And laying on of hands had to do with the movement of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. And then the third couplet is the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. These are a beautiful picture of what we could even call a catechism for new believers or a catechism for those who are seeking and want to understand who God is and what it means to follow Christ. It's a beautiful picture of the ABCs of the faith. As we looked at last week, these guys had not moved on from the ABCs. Or there is possibility that they moved on, but they regressed and came back to the ABCs. And while the ABCs are important, the message from last week is we need to move on to maturity, as the first verse here says. It's time to grow up, kids. You're being sluggish. You're being milk drinkers. You're being a bunch of children, and it's time to grow up. We can't deal with the ABCs again. Now, something we considered from last week, and I sent out in an email, you may look at these things, repentance from dead works and faith toward God, instructions about washings or baptism and laying on of hands, resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. You might look at those and say, man, I don't know that I really have a real good grasp on those three couplets. That's a great place to start. You can be real honest with yourself. If you don't have a grasp on the ABCs, start there. Don't start with Jonathan Edwards. Don't start with John Owen. Don't start with guys like that. Start with some basic good teaching on repentance and faith. Somebody else mentioned another great, good, or great book that's a good starting point for getting the gospel right is The Explicit Gospel by Matt Chandler. I've heard from a number of people. That's a great handle on the basics of the gospel. If you don't have those, that's a great place to start in, in responding obedience to this passage last week and this week. Start with the ABCs. Get them. Now, the message here is to go on to maturity. We can't stay in the ABCs, Hebrews Church. It's time to go on to maturity. And then in verse 3, he says, and this we will do if God permits. This points back to growing up to maturity. We will grow up to maturity, Hebrews Church, if God permits. Now, some of it 
many of you, some of you may have never really thought through is God's role in salvation and God's role in growth. Something that we believe as a church, as a product of preaching through the book of John, especially John 6, John 10, other passages that helped us see God's sovereignty over salvation is also seeing God's sovereignty and even complete control over growing up to maturity. That even that belongs to God. Man, he's appealing to them to grow up, but yet he's acknowledging yet God's the real grower. Now, this could be a sermon in and of itself. We've had a sermon in the past called a means sermon where we understand the role of means in the life of a believer. I'll share a couple of passages with you. We're not gonna spend a lot of time here. If at some point after this sermon this coming week you wanna connect to that sermon, we'll try and connect you to that, to that sermon. But here's a couple of passages that nicely capture what's being said here, as in grow up, children, and this will do if God permits. Listen to these two passages from the book of Philippians. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it's God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Beautiful picture of grow up, kids, for it's God that'll grow you up. Be about the work of growing up, kids, for it's God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Another example Paul says, not that I've already obtained this salvation, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. I press on to lay hold of maturity because he has laid hold of me. You want to just understand where your efforts fit into, if you just wanted to consider these first three verses, you're where your efforts should fit in, you should pursue grabbing the ABCs and then growing up to maturity and eating some solid food and all the while attribute even that growth to God working it in you. Man, you're working out your salvation with fear and trembling for it's God who works in you to will and to work. A beautiful picture of means. Now, here's where the passage gets sticky, beginning in verse four. For it's impossible in the case of those who've been enlightened, who've tasted the heavenly gift, have shared in the Holy Spirit, have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance. Now, let me sort of tease out what's being said here. It's impossible to restore again to repentance one who has been enlightened, one who has tasted the heavenly gift, tasting there means experiencing, one who has shared in the Holy Spirit, one who has tasted the goodness of, of God's word, and one who has tasted the powers of the age to come. There are five things there that I want to just consider just for a moment. These five things are the key to making sense of what's being said here in this passage. They're like the, that, that's where, they're what unlocks the meaning in this passage. There are many different approaches to these five things. John Wesley believed these are a description of salvation. He believed that these five things are someone who has been saved now, put that in your kind of little pocket there. We'll come back to that later. Let's look at a couple of possibilities for what these five things are. The first has to do with what appears to have taken place in the wilderness experience for the nation of Israel. At this point, what would have been 1,500 years earlier. 
The Hebrews preachers often referencing the Exodus and often referencing the wilderness experience as an instrument that's more than metaphor for them to connect to with going the distance with God in their context. Don't bail on God like your forefathers did in the wilderness who disbelieved the spies and lost out on their inheritance. You may remember that argument back in chapters three and four. If this is a reference to the Exodus journey, then some of these things have some application. It's impossible to restore again to repentance. Once one who has been enlightened might connect to the traveling with the column of fire to light the way in the wilderness. They're enlightened. God is lighting their way as they're moving through the wilderness. Their tasting of the heavenly gift may connect to the tasting of the manna and quail that are laying on the ground every morning when they get up. Beautiful transfer. Their tasting of the goodness of God's word would be a connection to their embracing the message that came through Moses when he came down from the mountain with shining face, eager to receive that word. And this last one, the tasting of the powers of the age to come would beautifully connect to the mighty acts of judgment, the plagues, the parting of the Red Sea, excuse me, the Sinai mountain quaking, some of these miracles that they saw firsthand, they would nicely connect to the powers of the age to come. That's one real possibility that this is what this is referencing. Here's another good, strong possibility. There's a strong argument that these five things represent the ordinances and the sacraments and the practice and the central things characteristic to life in the church. Now, here's how that would break down. Enlightenment being that first thing. It's impossible to restore again to repentance one who has been enlightened. There's strong evidence that that word enlightenment is connected to baptism. Illumination and baptism were not used quite synonymously But the language of illumination was used to describe baptism and the other way around. They weren't quite interchangeable, but you see them connected. You see them even as early in the second and third century in the early church, the historian Justin is using the language of baptism in terms of illumination. It's likely, very likely, that that term here had to do with a connection to baptism. Now, in the New Testament, the term is used throughout the New Testament to refer to spiritual and intellectual illumination through the action of God and preaching, and God through preaching. What's implied is not just instruction, but actual renewal of the mind. Now, here's the thing that I want you to get. Baptism does not bring illumination. Baptism attests to illumination. So it would make a lot of sense for this early church connection. Next time we have a baptism up here, we have our horse trough up here, it would not be inappropriate for us and it may be absolutely appropriate for us in light of this sermon to say, little Johnny has been enlightened. The eyes of his heart have been opened. Dunk, because baptism and illumination go together. Now, if that's baptism, we could follow on to the next thing. 
the tasting of the heavenly gift would beautifully transfer to the thing that we taste every single week. It's something that would be able to take, you know, to consider really lightly or just routine and mundane, but to really connect to this passage of what's going on in the life of the church, what's going on in the life of this church every week. If someone said tasting of the heavenly gift, we would likely think about what's on these two tables back here. We should. If that first one is in fact connected to baptism, then beautifully the second one is connected to the supper. The third, the laying on of hands and the sharing of the Holy Spirit, laying on of hands, there's a connection there where there was some practice apparently that went all the way through Judaism where the blessings went with the laying on of hands. When Moses ordained Joshua to take over the leadership of the people, it went with laying on of hands. When Isaac blessed Jacob, he laid on hands. When Jacob then blessed his sons, he laid on hands. Remember how he blessed Ephraim and Manasseh and did the little switcheroo? Laying on of hands and blessings go together. There's also a picture in Acts. I want to save your energy so you can just listen to this. Acts chapter 8. Verse 14, listen to this. Now, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit for he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Now, when Simon saw that the spirit was given through the laying on of hands, he offered them money saying, give me this power also so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. There appears to be a connection in the early church to laying on hands and the sharing in the Holy Spirit. The next thing would be the tasting of the goodness of word. Man, we do that every week. We do that every week in here corporately. We do that every week on Wednesday nights where we gather and we dig into God's word. Many of you do this as families every week where you just sit and read the Bible together. That's tasting of the goodness of the word. And then there's tasting of the powers of the age to come. And this would have likely gone with the signs and wonders that were associated with life in the early church. Man, First possibility is the Exodus connection. Second possibility is the life of the church. And what I think is taking place there, what, I, what also some other guys that I respect a lot think are taking place there is that both of these are in view, that the sacraments and ordinances in the life of the church and the Exodus journey is represented in these five things. In the case of the Exodus, if that's only what it is, the Hebrews preacher is essentially saying, if you walk away from God's people, you're going to die in the desert. You're going to lose illumination. You're going to lose the food that drops out of the sky. You're going to lose the word that comes through Moses. You're going to lose the powers of the age, and you're going to need them in the wilderness. Man, beautiful transfer if that's all it is. In the case of the reference to the church, though, if you fall away from God's people, you're going to die in the world. You're going to die in the world, and your end is to be burned. If you fall away from that weekly meal, if you fall away from that tasting of God's word, if you fall away from all that God's people are doing together in the life of the church, man, you, your end is to be burned. Man, two beautiful possibilities there. And I think both are at play. It would be in keeping with the Hebrews preacher for him to mean both of them 
the way he communicates, the way he develops an argument. Whatever the case, we can look at these five things and see that these are five wonderful blessings of being with God's people. Maybe there is no better description in our Bibles of the treasures and beauties of being part of a church family than those five things. Man. Now, I think that's why it's so troubling. We're gonna get into this argument some more in a moment. But I want us to unpack the rest of the passage briefly. It's why it's so troubling seeing these beautiful things and then the words, it's impossible in front of them. And then after them, seeing for those who've fallen away to restore them again to repentance. It's impossible for those who have participated in these five beautiful things and then haven't fallen away to restore them again to repentance. I thought maybe there's hope in the word impossible. So I looked at the Greek word for impossible and I found that the Greek word for impossible means impossible. <laughs> like, no, that's not it. Man, it's placed emphatically at the beginning of the sentence. There's no way to work around this word. It means impossible. Now this phrase, and then have fallen away, the tense of fallen away is an aorist Greek tense. And that aorist tense implies that it's a decisive moment and decision of departure. I am making a commitment to bail on Jesus Christ. It may not mean departure from the church, too. If you want to look at some of the apostasy examples that we'll look at later. Man. But it is a decisive commitment to bail on Christ. Man, and you remember in their context, in the Hebrews context here, what it's meaning for them is they're not gonna stop being religious because for them to bail on Christ means they're going back to Judaism. And that's what he's calling apostasy. That's what he's calling falling away. They bail on Jesus while remaining religious. Now, question that we're gonna deal with in a moment, but I just throw this question out there just so you know this question's coming. Does this mean people can lose their salvation? Remember what I told you? Wesley said these five things were description of salvation. So Wesley would say yes. And in fact, Wesley did say yes. This means that you can lose your salvation. And for those of you who have done some research on Arminianism and Calvinism, you know that Wesley was Arminian. And that's the natural transition you're gonna go to. If it's something that you have a part in gaining, then you can certainly have a part in losing. See that? Man, we'll come back to that here in a moment. But let's finish unpacking this passage. Let's continue on in verse, what verse are we on now? The second half of that verse. Since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. Now we get into the reasons for the impossibility. We're gonna come back and work through this a little bit more in a moment. But let's finish unpacking the luggage in this passage. The reasons for the impossibility are in this verse and the next couple of couple of verses. Since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt, since what they're doing is crucifying Christ all over again, hence the impossibility. The Son of God here, it's an interesting connection. The Son of God here, this language of the Son of God, at least so far in the book of Hebrews, has been connected to a confession if your Bible lays the way mine does, you can look over at chapter four, verse 14. 
just to the left in the next little column there. Since then, we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens. Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast our confession. That confession likely went with baptism. Some people that are studying this thing, these scholars that really spend their lives digging into books like Hebrews say that that is a reference to baptism and that people, the hearers would have heard that and thought, oh yeah, my confession, oh yeah, my baptism. Yet here it is again, another reference to baptism in this passage. Now let's continue on. Harming themselves and holding Christ up to contempt. And what's happening here? He's talking about the impossibility of restoration to repentance based on a very violent and graphic image of what you're doing when you partake of all these five blessings of God and then walk away from it. You've grabbed hammer, you've grabbed nails, and you're nailing Christ to the cross all over again. And that's not all. What else went with crucifixion? Then you're jeering then you're mocking, then you're spitting with the crowd and holding him up to contempt. That's what that means there. That's effectively what's taking place when someone walks with God's people and, then, and participates in those five blessings and then bails on Christ. It's grabbing hammer and nails and nailing our Savior to a cross all over again after tasting of the blessings. Hence, the impossibility look at verse 7 and 8. The reasons continue and then the consequences are in the very last part of verse 8. For land that's drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it's cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it's worthless and near to being cursed and its end is to be burned. Responsive fruitful and useful land and soil receives a blessing. See what's being said there. And then unresponsive, unfruitful land or soil that's worthless is near to being cursed. That's chronologically near, not as in reckoned near. It's in it's coming. And then it lands on that last part and they are thrown and then it is to be burned in the end. Matthew 7 has a beautiful example of the same message. Christ says, a healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruit. If we combine these phrases in these two passages, its end is to be burned and they're thrown into the fire, then hopefully you can appreciate what that's saying there. What that means is eternal damnation. Don't mistake it. Eternal damnation. Someone who has participated in the five blessings of walking with God's people and renounces Christ will receive eternal punishment in hell. That's what's clearly being communicated right here. No gymnastics, no trying to work our way around it. That's what's clearly being communicated at this point. Now, in this passage, verses one through eight, it's interesting what the Hebrews preacher does. 
Leading up to this passage and then picking up right after it in verse nine, he talks to the Hebrews church in first person. You, you, you guys, you guys, you guys. But in verses one through eight, he shifts to second person. If one or someone, it's almost like he's talking about this apostate being hypothetical at this point. It's unclear whether anybody has even apostatized at the Hebrews church. Some people think that they have. But the fact that he shifts gears here and in verse nine, he says, but we feel sure of better things for you seems to be this, he's, he's connecting to a hypothetical person. But while he's collect, connecting to a hypothetical person, what seems very clear is it's not a hypothetical warning. I want you to hear what I'm saying there. There's a whole approach to this passage that says this is just a threat, an empty threat. A way to work around this passage. Maybe there are many in and they just can't, well, it can't be they're losing their salvation. So maybe this is just an empty threat. I get it. It would be an easy way to explain it, but it's not responsible to the passage, nor is it responsible to a kind of God that just makes empty threats. Does that sound like Yahweh? Man, this is not a hypothetical threat. This is a real outcome for those that bail on him. Keep your finger in Hebrews and look over at 2 Peter. I want to show you a passage that connects to really the gravity for those that have tasted these things and then walk away from it. 2 Peter develops this, this outcome or this practice, describes this practice of false teachers in chapter two. Chapter two, verse one identifies who we're talking about here is false teachers. There will be false teachers among you. Realize we're not just talking about geographically, like, okay, you live in, in Ephesus. There are gonna be some false teachers that kind of hang out in Ephesus. When he's saying among you, he's mean in the church. And then he goes on describing how these guys are gonna move and what they're gonna do. And look at what happens in verse 20. For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world through knowledge of our Lord and Jesus, Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, you could say illumination, right? They are again entangled in them and overcome. The last state has become worse for them than the first. It would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. Peter says, man, the consequences for tasting of these five blessings and then bailing on them are worse than had you never tasted them at all. I don't know how that's gonna play out, but I believe my Bible, it's referenced in a few different places where it looks like things are gonna be worse for those that have tasted all these things and then bail on him. Man, let's let the scripture speak for what it's actually saying there just for a moment. And I know what's really hard is you probably have people's names in your head right now. Probably people that you love and care about. You're like, man, I, I don't think I can process this because I'm thinking of Bill or Sally. Listen, I appreciate that, man, those people matter. But just for a moment, let's let the scripture speak. Let's let it say what it's actually saying and let's let it speak. And man is saying the danger of tasting these five things and then bailing on them is terrible. Its end, their end is to be burned. Man, 
Let it say what it's saying. Talking about something that we have referenced a few times in this passage. There have been sermons on it as we've worked through Hebrews, the word apostasy. For those of you who are visiting or those of you who are not here when we worked through that in the past, let me define apostasy for you. Apostasy is the act of rebelling against, forsaking and abandoning or falling away from what one has believed. You gotta know apostasy not only can happen, it does happen and it happened a lot in the life of the church. I wanna show you just a few examples. I'm not gonna get into a lot of examples this morning. Just a few examples, just a little sampling of apostasy. So maybe you can connect to it and just see that it does happen. First of all, it happened, turn to John 6 and while you're turning there, I'll share with you. It happened in Israel over the whole Old Testament. I, for me, I'm like, man, why, why, does some, why would someone have such a hard, you know, such a hard time receiving that apostasy happens when they see an entire three quarters of our Bible illustrating it? Where people that weren't, that God made, that, that he called out, bailed on him time and time and time and time again. He preserves a remnant yet over and over and over again because of the promise that he made to Abraham. But you see a people that he called out for his own possession that time and time and time again illustrate what apostasy looks like. And you saw where it landed them in exile in Assyria and exile in Babylon. Israel is a beautiful example and it's about three quarters of our Bible. But maybe we think, okay, this side of Christ, things will be different. Let's look at John 6. John 6 is a great example of what's happened this side of the incarnation or this side of Christ's birth. And then we're gonna move into some examples in the church. The beginning of chapter six, Jesus feeds the multitudes. Shortly after he feeds the multitudes, they wanna make him king and he sends them around the Sea of Galilee. He goes up on the hill to pray. And then sometime during the night, he crosses the Sea of Galilee and walks on the water, just to kind of give you some context. He climbs in the boat with his disciples at some point over the night. They're sore afraid. You remember that whole event? And the next thing they know it, they're on the other side. We pick up, I'm just gonna read some excerpts from chapter six. Listen to these excerpts, beginning in verse 26. Truly, truly, I say to you, you're seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of loaves. They show up on the other side of the Sea of Galilee and they're like, hey, uh, Jesus, how'd you get here? I mean, that was like a magic trick. I mean, you were just over there. We saw you go up the mountain and then there you are, Shazam. He says, you're here not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. And he's saying your stomachs led you here. And he goes into this argument or this, this teaching on what they should be working for. Do not labor for the food that perishes don't labor for food, loaves, and fishes like I gave you yesterday, but labor for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? They connect meal, eternal meal, to some works. It's understandable. It's a very natural thing. Tell us what we have to do to get into heaven is basically what they're asking. Tell us what works we have to do. If you don't want us to go after loaves and fishes, want us to go after something eternal, just tell us what hoops to jump through. And this is what he responds with. This is the work of God. There's only one. 
that you believe in him whom he has sent. Now he's presenting this Christ-centric, Jesus-centric pursuit for heaven. That is the work of God, to believe on him whom he has sent. And he begins to expound over the course of this chapter. Look at verse 35. He says, I'm the bread of life. Don't go after the temporal food, go after the eternal food. And I'm that food. I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Look at verse 41. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I'm the bread that came down from heaven. Because they said, I thought he came from Nazareth. That's what they respond with. Wait, isn't he Joseph's boy? Listen to what they say. They said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I've come down from heaven? And Jesus answered them, don't grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. That verse unhinged this church about seven years ago, eight years ago. Because we had to deal with the reality that, oh, God is completely sovereign over salvation. That word draws means drags. No one can come to me, Jesus, unless the Father who sent me drags him to me. Now, they're grumbling about this Christ-centered message already. And they're grumbling about, wait a second, he's saying we're supposed to dine only on him. I know he's speaking figurative. But isn't he Joseph's boy? And then he also starts communicating some messages of sovereignty. Look at verse 53. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father. So whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not as the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Now let's pick up. Let's go all the way through verse 61. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, ooh. I put ooh in there. I don't know they said ooh. But this is kind of the sense of it. This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? Isn't he Joseph's boy? And he's saying that there's no works, there's no hoops to jump through. I want me some hoops because then I can measure how I'm doing. The only work he's given me is to believe on him. And not only that, he just wants us to feed on him. Man, it seems pretty Christ-centric. And this is a hard saying, who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Now look down at verse 65. Sovereignty message continues. And this is why I told you, no one can come to me unless it's granted him by the Father. Look what happens. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. After a message on Christ alone, no hoops, no works that you can do to measure yourself and Repentance of faith or repentance from dead works. You hear the connection in Hebrews? After a message on that and after a message implying some sovereignty in there, they're like, ugh, who can take this message? We're out of here. Mm. And it doesn't just say a few bailed on him. It says many bailed on him. 
man, that's just one example. Turn over the next page in John. I'm not going to read the whole chapter here like I did this last one. I'm going to show you two verses that are just ironic the way it unfolds. Chapter 8, verse 30, as he's saying these things, many believed in him. He's been preaching a message on being the light of the world. Can you imagine being there at that sermon by the light of the world about being the light of the world? And it says, many believed on him. The whole front row was filled with people filling out their little decision cards. They had those little short pencils that are always too dull where you write your name and it looks like somebody else's name. Like, Man, I wish I had a sharper pencil because I love Jesus though. And here they are on the front row, man. Many believed in him. But the context doesn't change all the way through the end of the chapter. Look at the last verse of the chapter. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. (laughs) Wait a second. They dropped their stubby pencils and picked up rocks. I've often called this this chapter the the revival gone bad. Like if Jesus would have just stopped when they're filling out the cards, but he kept talking and he called them sons of Satan. You believe your your father, Satan. And man, the thing went south bad. Example after example in our Bible. And who can't connect to the reality of Judas being a great example of apostate? I mean, that's right here in our Bibles. If you know the story of Judas, Judas has become such a household word that if somebody um, uh, bails on somebody or somebody betrays somebody, we call them a Judas. And Judas is a beautiful example. He left with the others all to follow Christ. He forsook everything to follow Christ and dedicated three years to following Christ. And if you look at some of the gospels that give the accounts of the things that the disciples did, there's no indication that he didn't participate in those things. I guarantee he participated in the powers of the age to come. He may have cast out demons. And he ate with Jesus. And yet he traded his birthright for a bowl of soup. 30 pieces of silver. Man, goodness gracious. He experienced those five blessings. Manifold version. In firsthand version, being with Jesus himself, and then he bails for 30 pieces of silver. Man, apostasy happens. Look at 1 Timothy 1. I want you to see a couple of these other examples. 1 Timothy 1. I'm going to begin in verse 18, but it's verse 19 and 20 where I really, where I want you to see it. So while you're turning there, I'll be reading. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, a young pastor, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, the faith and a good conscience, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander whom I have handed over to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. Apostates, it appears so. A shipwrecked faith looks like a faith that is shipwrecked. I mean, really, think about it. 2 Timothy 4, just turn the page. Look over at 2 Timothy 4. Another example. 
Verse nine, do your best to come to me, Timothy. I need my coat. I need my books. I need all that kind of stuff. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone on to Thessalonica. Another picture of apostasy, fell back in love with the world. He bailed not only on the ministry, but bailed on life with God in general, it appears. Turn the page to Titus. Titus chapter one. I'm gonna begin in verse 15. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. Okay, we're talking about unbelieving and defiled. They, the unbelieving and defiled, profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. The reason I wanted to show you all three of those, those three letters, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus, are called the pastoral epistles. It's a a senior pastor writing to a new young pastor, helping him make sense of the difficulties of ministry. And in all three of these, he's saying, man, let me help you with the people that fall away. Let me help you make sense of it because it's gonna happen. Not a matter of if it happens, it's a matter of when it happens. And apparently Timothy needed to hear that. Titus needed to hear that. There are other examples, and I'm not gonna go into a lot of any other examples, really. I think that's sufficient. You can go back and study 2 Peter chapter two for a real nice progression of what apostasy looks like. But I wanna ask you this. Does your theology allow room for apostasy? Or have little sayings crowded that out? Have little sayings made it impossible for you to make sense of nuance? One saying that comes to mind that I heard when I was growing up is once saved, always saved. Let me just, anybody, just show me a hand. Anybody ever heard that? Okay, most people in this room have heard that saying. Now, I'm not gonna tell you right now, I disagree with that. But the problem is quippy sayings like that, they don't really define what does saved mean? Who are we calling saved? John Wesley called the person that experiences those five things saved. So he wouldn't say once saved, always saved, those that are so desperately in love with Arminian theology. He's saying you can lose it. Interesting. Man, I think this once saved, always saved sort of little sayings, it sort of fuels someone to make sense of something they might see play out right in front of them, like a family member or a friend or an acquaintance that they saw at one point, they knew at one point they were in church with, they walked with at one point and they saw vibrant faith and then they walk away from all of it and you'll hear the saying, I heard the saying all over Greenville when Scott and I knocked door to door at every home south of I-30. Yeah, old Bill, he's not with the church anymore, but at least he's saved. Man, I, I want really? Well, how, how do you know that? I mean, how, well, I was there. I saw it happen. And I'm, wait a second. That doesn't add up. That doesn't compute. But that's these little type of sayings, once saved, always saved, fueling things that don't give room for nuance are subtle differences that can make for very different outcomes. Now, the two questions that I want to deal with next. The first question. Are these hypothetical people, if we could say, we don't know for sure, these possibly hypothetical people losing their salvation? 
That's an important question. And it's probably a question that a lot of you came here eager to hear. <laughs> what's been, what's Crosspoint going to do with this, this grenade? Here's the second part of the question. Are or are they losing the blessings of being part of the people of God? Now, what seems to help make sense of this whole thing, I told you that how you approach those five things is gonna help you be, help with a key to unlocking this whole thing. And the first one, I think baptism is a beautiful thing to help make sense of this, not conversion. Now, I'm gonna come back to baptism in a minute. If you define with John Wesley these five things as salvation, that's what it means to be saved, then you join John Wesley in saying people can lose their salvation. Now, on the other hand, if you were to connect to this, I would say maturely, and I'm not saying John Wesley wasn't mature. I don't know. I, don't, I don't, didn't know him. If you were to connect, what I would say would be wisely and maturely with nuance, Baptism is a beautiful key to help make sense of this. It's interesting that the Hebrews preacher starts in verse one of chapter six, mentioning washings as part of the ABCs, like this should be a given that everybody understands baptism and what it actually is. And then two other times in the passage, he seems to be connecting to baptism. Enlightenment, if that was really a reference to baptism, there's another reference and then when he identifies the son of God, remember when in the, and we were unpacking, I said that son of God pointed back to chapter four, verse 14, confession. It seems this passage is saturated with baptism language. If he's connecting to baptism, then here's what I want you to see. Baptism is the covenant ceremony when someone becomes part of the people of God in a very real sense. A real person walks through those real doors, gets in real water, real baptism takes place, and they become in a very real sense part of the people of God, okay? And they participate in those five things that we participate in. I want you to think about this for a moment. It's like a wedding ceremony or like an ordination, in both of those ceremonies, people come in one sort of person and leave as another. We've had a few wedding ceremonies in here. Some of you have been married in here. You came in as single people and you left in the eyes of God as one, okay? We haven't had an elder ordination in here, but we've had a few over there in that building. And people came in as an elder in training and they left as an ordained elder by the laying on of hands and prayer, what I want you to see is that God recognizes ritual and he counts the baptized person in a different state after their baptism than they were before. One who has professed faith in Christ as their Savior and Lord comes from outside the covenant family into the covenant family via the waters of baptism. I hope nobody in this room would disagree with that. That is the covenant. It is like the New Testament version of circumcision. Circumcision is when someone became part of the people of God. Same would be true for baptism. This is their covenant ceremony. It's like a wedding ceremony. And we are pronouncing them man and wife with a heavenly groom now. Okay, see the importance of that. Now, you must know that it's true that folks can be baptized into the covenant people and then yet break covenant with God and bail 
on the marriage. They can then leave the marriage, so to speak. These people are walking away from the five blessings of community, having participated in all of them, having tasted them, in fact, in beautiful ways, having sat under the teaching and preaching of the word, having been involved in the ministry of the Holy Spirit where people come alongside. They may even had some sort of thing that they're really good at that other people identified as a gift of the Holy Spirit, but it wasn't a gift of the Holy Spirit. It just happened to be something they're really good at. But the Holy Spirit could even use that to edify the body. They may have cast out demons in somebody's name. And think of all the crazy stuff that people could participate in and then yet walk away from. And yet they were part of a covenant people, but as 1 John says, they were never really of us. I'm gonna read that passage in a moment. I want you to see it. But I want you to think about this for a moment. If you'd like to turn there, you can. Matthew 13. Matthew 13 has a beautiful picture of this, among other passages, but this one just really nicely does it. Matthew chapter, chapter, chapter 13 is an entire chapter dedicated to making sense of the kingdom of God. This is how the kingdom works. He starts teaching his disciples in parables, and he shares the, the parable of the sower, the seed, and the soils where the seed falls on different types of soils. And listen to what he explains in chapter 13, beginning in verse 20 specifically. As for what was sown on rocky ground, he presents four different types of soil, wayward, rocky, uh, thorny soil that has a bunch of thorns in it, and then good soil. And the second and third ones are one I want you to pay attention to. Listen to this. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word of God, immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. You see, there were signs of growth in the beginning though. But tribulation and persecution, and they're gone. Poof. As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and it proves unfruitful. And the last one talks about the good soil and what happens there, bearing good fruit, connecting to some other passages that we've already read this morning. Man, these people having experienced all the blessings of being part of the people of God can bail. According to the Hebrews preacher, according to Christ's teaching on the nature of the kingdom, they can then bail. And according to this passage in Hebrews, it's impossible to restore them again to repentance. Matthew 7 is another passage. Don't turn there, just listen. Someone may have prophesied in his name. Someone may have cast out demons in his name. Someone may have done mighty works in his name, yet they hear the words in Matthew 7, 21 through 23, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. And I don't know if we have any better connections than passages like this. You reckon they tasted of the five blessings of being part of the people of God? So walking away from the covenant family and all the blessings of being part of the covenant family would explain this without doing violence to our theology. 
Man, they're walking away from the covenant people. That's what they're doing. And they're losing the blessings of being part of the people of God. I told you I wanted, to see, wanted you to see 1 John chapter 2. Turn there. It's probably the last place I have you turn this morning. That doesn't mean we're nearly done, but we are kind of getting close though. So don't, don't lose heart. Visitors especially. 1 John 2, 19. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are all not of us. It doesn't look like these are people losing their salvation. I'm so thankful for that. But it looks like they're losing the blessings of walking with the people of God. The second question I want to deal with this morning, and this is probably the harder one. What happens to a man or woman who leaves the faith having walked with God's people and having been baptized into his bride? Is it truly impossible for them to return? Man, that's a hard question. I thought of three examples. Actually, five. But the first three are pretty frightening. The first one being in Hebrews 12. If you want to turn there, you're welcome to. I've got it right here, so I'll probably turn there quickly. Esau came to mind. You know the story of Jacob and Esau. You know that Esau came in hungry from a hunt and was so hungry that he traded his birthright for a bowl of soup. Esau's the guy. I used that language figuratively with Judas. But Esau's the one who really did that. He traded his birthright for a bowl of soup. And in chapter 12 of Hebrews, beginning in verse 15... It says this, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one's sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. That's one example that came to mind. Another example that came to mind was the nation of Israel. Fits very nicely with the context here too of the language where they're bailing on God by not believing and not trusting him when they get the spies report. The consequences there when they wanted to stone Joshua and Caleb were meted out and here were those consequences. Say to this people, as I live, declares the Lord, what you've said in my hearing, I will do to you. Your dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness and all of your number listed in the census from 20 years old and upward who have grumbled against me, not one shall come into the land that I swore, where I swore that I would make you dwell except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh and Joshua, the son of Nun. Now listen what the nation of Israel does. When Moses told these words to the people of Israel, the people mourned greatly and they rose early in the morning and went up to the heights of the hill country saying, here we are. We're just kidding. We'll go in there after all. We'll go up to the place that the Lord has promised for we have sinned. And Moses said, why now are you transgressing the command of the Lord when that will not succeed? Do not go up for the Lord is not among you. 
lest you be struck down before your enemies. For there the Amalekites and the Canaanites are facing you and you shall fall by the sword because you've turned your back from following the Lord. The Lord will not be with you. You've bailed on the five blessings of walking with God's people. But they presumed to go up on the heights of the hill country, although neither the ark of the covenant of the Lord nor Moses departed out of the camp. Then the Amalekites and the Canaanites who lived in the hill country came down and whipped their hineys. And then the consequence is they died in the wilderness. 40 years of wandering became a big graveyard for that entire generation. They sought it with tears. We just kidding. Let us in after all. No, you turned your back on the blessings of God. And then there's Judas. We know Judas' story. We've mentioned him this morning already. But think about what happened. When Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind. He brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders saying, I sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed and went and hanged himself. Man, my mind immediately went to those three examples of people who sought repentance but did not find it because they turned their back on the blessings of God, having tasted them. I mentioned there were five. The other two that I thought of were Peter and the prodigal. Peter's denial of Christ, though, is used as an example that's on par with this sort of turning your back on Jesus, and I don't see it quite the same. He's standing outside the courtyard, courtyard, can't wait to find out what's happened to his Savior. Did he deny Jesus? Absolutely. Three times. It doesn't look to me like falling away like these guys did, though. He didn't fall away from Jesus and bail on Jesus. He didn't stop, fall, he didn't stop walking with the other disciples. I don't think it's an example on par with those examples. And maybe that's why he found restoration over a nice fish breakfast with his Savior. The other example is the prodigal son the parable of the prodigal is not something that you, you, you be careful about taking a parable and teasing out specific elements of it without getting the point of the parable. And the point of the parable is what's the older brother, the Pharisees of Israel doing when the younger brother who's eating pig slop, the sinful prostitutes and people that eat with prostitutes and sinners are coming to Christ. That's the point of it. I'm not sure that we can really glean a lot from how the whole thing unfolds as far as the prodigal leaving home and then coming back. But yet, both of them were restored to repentance. So what's the difference in the first three and the last two? I think ultimately God is the difference. Remember in verse three of Hebrews chapter six, and this we will do if God allows it, tells me that God's in control of salvation, God's in control of maturity, and God's in control of repentance and restoration. He is the driver. He is able, he is capable to restore Peter and then not to restore Judas. He can do that because he's God. He's able to give blessings to Jacob and not Esau. He can do that because he's God. Romans 9 be a great place to go and see that. Man, 
You may not like that God is sovereign over our walk and that he's sovereign over our adherence. Every time an apostasy sermon comes up, man, people get so fidgety. Because I think I had a, a great email from one of our small group shepherds saying, man, I think what's going on in my small group is that, that like when people are stressing over that, they're realizing I'm not in control. What am I supposed to do if I'm not in control? Man, I, for me, it's liberating when that died. Man, the more I learn about myself and my walk and what I'm prone to, I need God to drag me to Christ. I need God, in fact, to bind my wandering heart to thee. Man, it's liberating for me to know that he's in control and not me. I need him to bring to completion what he began because if it's up to me, it's doomed because I know me. I don't have a good track record. Do you? Man, I know paradigms don't die easily. I know that. Mine died seven years ago, eight years ago. It was a miserable death. Gracious. If it's up to me, it's doomed. It's interesting seeing folks come to terms with stuff like this for the first time. Like someone who thought they were in control and realized they weren't. Or maybe even refused to believe that they weren't. I can't hear this anymore. I'm out. I've seen plenty of that too. We saw that in John chapter 6 after all, didn't we? Sovereignty message. Christ alone message, many of his disciples no longer followed him. I'm gonna tell you right now, I don't want control of my salvation because I can't be trusted. I don't have a good track record. I'm thankful that he is. Now, how should this leave us? Two things, just two things. First, how should this message leave us? It should leave us as a church wanting and seeking and enjoying the five blessings of being part of the people of God. Man, reading those five things and studying those five things, I'm like, man, the reason I've never really studied that closely is because they're in such a difficult passage. If we didn't preach verse by verse through Hebrews, do you think I'd be preaching on this? Have you ever heard a sermon on this? I, my whole life, I haven't heard one. I'm sure there are other people, faithful dudes that are reading, preach, preaching expositorily that like, okay, that Sunday's coming up. It is what it is. But if I hadn't, man, I would have missed out on the blessings that are in these five things. These are five treasures. These things are the cream of walking with God's people. They would make for a really nice mission statement for Cross Point Fellowship. Where's your mission statement from? Uh, it's from Hebrews chapter six. What? That's a minefield. No, it's a treasure. Those five things are the five things we want to be about. We want to be enlightened. We want our eyes of our hearts to be open to the truth about God, his work, his son, our world, our neighbor, ourselves. I want enlightenment. Ephesians 1.18 says, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he's called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance of the saints. I want enlightenment. And why wouldn't we connect that to baptism? Washing away the dirt, man. Opening the eyes of my heart, our hearts. Man, this is happening to those that have been baptized into this people. Some of you were baptized into this people. Most of the kids, or many, I should say, the kids in this room that have been baptized were baptized into this people. Ask their teachers, ask yourself, 
Are you, yourselves, are you hearing enlightenment at home? Are you hearing them processing things that are a product of their participation in walking in with this people and being baptized into this covenant family? Man, I love enlightenment. Let's, let's, let's be enlightened. Let us taste and experience the heavenly gift too. Experiencing new life with God, tasting and seeing that the Lord is good. I want that in a church like manna from heaven when we're hungry. I want us together to eat that meal, to race to that meal and savor that supper together every single week. I don't want to miss it. Man, that's the cream. Sharing in the Holy Spirit. Enjoying all that God does for us as he's present with us. Comforting, revealing, explaining, guiding, assuring. I want that too. I want to taste and experience the goodness of the word of God, partaking in the oracles of God week by week like a cool drink in the desert. Man, like our daily bread. Anybody ever had those little handouts? We always have one in the bathroom. It's about how long it took to read one. Daily bread. Good. What a great word. That's a great word. Daily bread. Like sustenance, it gives you life. Reading our Bibles individually, reading them as families, reading them as small groups, and sitting under the teaching and preaching of the word. Man, what else you got at Crosspoint? Man, what else do we need? Right? We don't need dancing girls, smoking mirrors. We don't need disco. That's man, that's that's fine. I'll take that. <laughs> and tasting and experiencing the powers of the age to come. Man, I've seen the powers of the age to come. I'm seeing them in Christian Hass right now. I'll take that. I'm seeing and experiencing the powers of the age to come and thinking about some marriages in this room that have been transformed right before my eyes. Powers of the age to come right there. I'll take that. Man, let's be about those five things. Let's enjoy those five things. They're the cream of being with God's people. And the second thing I want to encourage you with is to not leave this for anything. I'm not talking about cross point. I, I'm not so cross point centric that I think if you leave cross point, you don't love Jesus anymore. We are so close as a church family that sometimes it can feel that way. Hear what I'm saying this morning. There may be a time where, man, something gets so raw or something so difficult that you just, man, I, I need to make a departure. I would argue those times are so, so slim. That should rarely happen. The times where you should really think about departing a church is when your theology differs, when they're not preaching the Bible. And in 10 years, I've never had one person, at least that I know of, say, you guys aren't preaching the Bible there. They've left for other reasons because I don't like you and I'm not willing to work through it. That's not a good reason. It's not. But there are people that will leave the faith and man, it'll, people, it'll be people that surprise you. It'll be people that surprise you. And my encouragement to you today is let this passage hit you like it should hit you where you realize the gravity of it and you don't think you can just hang out there like a little island. When you bail on these five things, you've bailed on the cream. You've bailed on what it means to walk with God's people. 
This might be helpful to you too for a, someone who's visiting. Say, man, I want to find a church home. Look for those five things. And don't bail on them if you find them. <laughs> don't bail on them just because a guy rubs you raw. Man, work through it with the guy that rubs you raw. Peace is not the absence of conflict. It's peace is what you get on the other side of working through conflict. You don't bail on things just when you experience conflict because the gospel never has a chance to play out. You bail on it. You circumvent it. But if you find a place that's walking in these five things, man, don't you dare leave. This warning may have been means for this people to persevere. It may have been what God used in their lives to bring them to a place of, oh man, now I remembered what the cream was and I'm not leaving after all. Not for anything. Not for anything the world promises. This is a burdened call to continue. It should give us a really high view of baptism too and a sobriety with it because we're getting people married. And that's all the more reason to not baptize infants. I love my Pado Baptist brothers. I mean, Pado, yeah, Pado Baptist brothers, but we're Credo Baptists. You think you ought to be old enough where you're saying, I'm about to marry God and it's worse for me if I taste these blessings and then walk away than had I not ever known him at all? then I'm gonna take baptism very seriously. I'm being baptized into this people and I wanna have a really, really high view of it. It's not a cute ceremony. It's a serious rite where you are reckoned part of the covenant people. I can't tell you how many times I've watched folks get so fearful. Other words that I came up with was fidgety, anxious, Angry, even. I've seen anger over the topic of apostasy. And we've had to work through it just in Hebrews already a couple times. And every time, man, there's a, there's a, a range of emotions. And I, I think I'm probably going to have to agree with a small group shepherd that sent me that insightful email. I think it's we're, lack of control it makes me mad because I want to be in control. I feel like too, it's, it's almost like, like when we have one of these sermons that I'm on a train. You know, a lot of times you have those trains where the seats are facing each other and like I'm coming sitting down in front of you and I'm facing this way and you're facing this way and we're all in this one seat. And I start talking to you and I tell you, you know, um, hey, I know you look real comfortable on the train and all, but um, you know, people have jumped off this train before. And you're like, what? And you're like, yeah, you remember Demas? Remember Hymenaeus, Alexander? You remember Judas? Remember some, and you're like, uh, oh yeah, that's true. Uh, that makes me kind of uncomfortable, makes me kind of fidgety, makes me kind of jumpy. <laughs> I'm like, no, you don't have to get up. Stay seated. This should, it shouldn't make you jumpy. It shouldn't make you go looking for the door. And that's, it's, it's, it's crazy what this topic does to people sometimes. I'm like, no, stay seated. Keep your seat. In fact, buckle up. Bind my wandering heart to thee, Lord. May your grace, Lord, like a fetter, bind my wandering heart to thee. Man, let these passages do what they should do. If they make you a little bit frightened, a little bit anxious, then you can work through that. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it's God who works in you to will and to work. It's okay. You're going to be okay. 
But if this thing scares you to death, you're like, man, I don't want to bail, then it's done its work. It's a warning after all. If you're like, nah, I'm going to figure out a way to explain my way around it. You've missed it. I think you've missed it. Wherever you may land on some of these things as they were explained this morning, you've got to see the point of the passages. Don't get off, get off the train. Don't get off the train because it'll be bad if you do. We may define bad differently, but it'll be bad. Embrace that you're not in control and hold on to Jesus and his people, period. Man, this messages like this should create a desperate dependence on God and a desperate clinging to his people. I need to hold on to you and you need to hold on to me. That's what life in the church looks like. Man. I met with Scott and Brad Thursday and talked through this entire sermon with them. In fact, I gave them a copy of my sermon. I was riding my bike yesterday and yesterday morning before it started raining and during it raining. And I was kind of, I had a little thought that maybe I'll get hit by a car this morning. I won't have to preach this sermon. <laughs> and, um, and then I thought, well, Brad and Scott both have a copy so they can stand and deliver, you know, <laughs> if they need to. It was a good time talking through it with him. So this, this sermon, nearly in every word, has been vetted. One thing that Scott said that um, Scott and Brad both were talking about that I appreciated hearing and being reminded of that I think nicely summarizes this. The proof of your salvation is in your perseverance. I'll say it again because you got to hear it. The proof of your salvation is in your Perseverance. The only joke that I, I've told you two jokes in 10 years, and this one I've told over and over again on this very topic. So when they asked the old man and said, hey, old man, lived here all your life? He says, no, not yet. That should be your mindset. Some of y'all didn't get that. <laughs> There's like one person over here like, yeah, that's pretty funny. I appreciate that. Thank you very much. I don't tell jokes very often. I want you to laugh when I tell one, you know. They asked the old man, said, hey, you lived here all your life? He says, no, not yet. It's a mindset that says, man, this salvation is a, is a, is a thing. I, it had a beginning, but it's a, it's, it's a thing. It's a life committed. It's a turned over life. It's a relationship. It's an adoption. It's a family. It's everything that involves these five things. And I want to walk in those things and enjoy those things. And the proof is in the perseverance, not in how sensational your conversion experience was. There have been some Amazing, sensational experiences of people that walked away from it and bailed on it. Now, let's have our supper. I'm looking forward to this supper, especially because the sermon is done. Matthew. If you want to turn there, you can. If you want to just listen, you can. It's connected to where we've been this morning. Beautifully, I think. This is at the supper table, at the Lord's Supper, the institution of the thing that we are celebrating every single week and the continuation of the Passover meal, mind you. In some ways, Jesus is saying, what you guys have been doing for 1,500 years, now do thinking about me, your Passover lamb. Okay, beautiful connection. Don't miss that. Here at the supper table, in chapter 26, verse 20, it says, when it was evening, he reclined at table 
with the 12. And as they were eating, he said, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him, one after another, is it I, Lord? Just imagine being there in that setting. Is it I, Lord? Is it I? Some of you might be feeling that way today. You're like, man, I'm kind of anxious about this sermon. And a little, you know, uh, work out your salvation of fear and trembling. I'm fearing and trembling. I think the, the 12 were sitting there. Is it I? Is it I? That's not a bad question to ask. Is it I, Lord? He answered, he who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The son of man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the son of man is betrayed. It would, be, would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Does that sound familiar to something else we've read this, this morning? Second Peter chapter 20, or chapter two, verse 20 and 22. It'd have been better if he had never even been born. Judas, who would betray him, answered, is it I, Rabbi? And he said to him, you've said so. Now, as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, this is the next verse. You see how beautiful it is that we're having a supper together on this morning, dealing with this passage or this truth, difficult truth, and having this meal together. If it were funny, we'd call it irony, but it's something like that. As they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink all of it or drink of it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my father's kingdom. Now in these next few minutes, we are going to eat of his flesh and drink of his blood. No hoops. What is the work of God? To believe on him whom he has sent. That's what we're doing right now as we take and eat something symbolic of the body and blood of Christ. Let's distribute the elements.